Welcome to Relevant Faith Church this morning. My name is Mike Womer. I'm the lead pastor here at Relevant Faith, and we are excited that you are here with us. We have uh, been in a series entitled Welcome Home, where we have been working through Luke chapter 15, and um, it's been a great time, and today is going to be the third message in that series, and that series will end next Sunday on Easter Sunday. So let's get to this. I'm going to read to you Luke chapter 15, just kind of where we were and, and a little synopsis of, of what we have gone through, a little, just a little, little recap, and then we're going to get into this message. This, I'm, I'm excited about this message because I was asked several times last week, so many folks come up to me and said, well, you're stopping at this verse. What about the, the other son? There's a whole, and I, I said, I, I got you. I got you. I'm going to get there, I promise. But this is where we've been, Luke chapter 15 and verse number 11. So I'm going, to, I'm going to read to you just a little bit and recap just a little bit of where we've been. And the Bible says, to illustrate this point further, and this was the point that Jesus was talking about how he looks for those things that are lost. He says, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant." So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the fatted calf, the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So let the party begin. I love the imagery of this story. I love the imagery of this, this, this message that that God has delivered. And a couple of things that I'll point out to you really quickly as we, as we then get into the third part of this message is the first part. The first thing is, and this is actually was not preached in the message series, but as a result of our exchange group, small group time, this was a conversation that came out that was just such a blessing is that when the son approached the father and said, I, I, I want half, I want my inheritance today. I want it right now. The interesting thing about that is this is what he was, in a sense, saying to the father. Father, you are virtually dead to me. I'm tired of living here. I want to do my own thing. Give me my money. That's what he was saying. Because even culturally, not that when, when, the, when the, the wealth and the inheritance was transferred, so was the authority, so was the power, and therefore that only took place upon death. 
That's the only time that took place, is that took place upon death. There was no such thing as, oh, I want my inheritance now, so can you give it to me? That, 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 that wasn't even a thing. You only received that upon death of the father. So he was wishing death upon his father. It's a pretty messed up place to be, right? Imagine your son coming to you and say, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. Whew. Last thing he'd be getting is half of his inheritance. He'd be more likely getting half of my foot, but no, we won't go there. But that's how he approached the father. So then fast forward, he lived his life. He did his whole wild living. He spent his money on prostitutes and, and, and partying and all the different things that he did. Got to the point where he was so destitute, so broken, so poor, so beat down that even food that he would feed the pigs looked good to him. And it says he finally came to his senses. See, we, I'm, I'm so thankful that we all have that moment where we come to our senses. For some of us, it's, it's, it's a little longer than others. But we have that moment that we come to our senses. He returns home. What I love about this is he to even, he's, and it's, it's interesting because he's having a conversation with someone. He says he, he said he finally came home. He said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. And then he tells himself what he's going to do. He's also gone a little bit crazy because of the life that he's living. Because he's speaking to himself. And it's not necessarily crazy. It's not necessarily talking to yourself. Because I think we all do that on some level. It's the answering that might lead to whether you're crazy or not. Speaking to yourself is one thing, but if you're answering yourself, maybe, maybe there's an issue there. I don't know. I answer myself from time to time, so <laughs> I just do. I say to myself, self, and I say something, and then I say to myself, oh, yeah, I know the answer to that, and I answer. And it might look crazy because sometimes I do it out loud. So he returns home to his father, and but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him coming. And that we, we discovered that, that phrase that they're using in their means. He was actually anticipating the return of his son. So he was literally, regularly looking for his son to come home. The very son that said, Dad, you're dead to me. Give me my money. He was looking for him to come home. So he finally comes home. The Bible says he runs to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He does all these things. And we illustrated that last week in our message, all the things the father did. And then the son humbles himself before the father and says, I have sinned against both God and heaven, and I have sinned against you, father. Make me as a servant. Which that meant there would be no more father-son relationship, that there would be no personal relationship. It would be the relationship of just a hired hand. I'm hiring you to do a job. You do your job. I give you your money. That's it. That's the end of relationship. But notice in the scripture, the father ignores his request and tells his servants, run very quickly. Like do this right now. That's the, that's the emphasis. Do it right now. Go get the robe. Go get the ring. Go get sandals for his feet. Go kill the calf that we have been fattening. Matter of fact, this is another thought that came out in our Bible study in our small group, which is why you have to be in a small group because it's so, there's just so much depth that comes and so much more Bible study and that's where discipleship happens. The idea came out that, that this calf, he says, go and get the calf, kill the calf that we have been fattening. He was fattening a calf in the expected return of his son. It wasn't just, we've just been making it fat so we could eat it because actually when it says kill, it doesn't, it's not slaughter for food. It is actually sacrifice as an offering and praise offering to God. 
That's the actual killing that was taking place. It wasn't just let's go gut it and eat it. It was let's sacrifice it and give it as a praise offering to God. He was already fattening this calf, expecting his son to return so that he could then throw a party. So that leads us to where we are now as we get to verse 25. The story takes a little bit of, turn, a little bit of a turn in verse 25, and this is what the Bible says. Meanwhile, you ever see that in the movies? Meanwhile, dot, 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 and it shows you the next scene. Well, here's the next scene. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. The servant said, your brother is back, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and had never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. There's an exclamation point at the end of that where he's very frustrated. You're killing the fattened calf for this son of yours who spent all his money on prostitutes. His father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So let's talk about this brother for just a moment. So when he comes back from all of his hard work in the field, work that he's doing for his father, work that he's doing to help his father grow whatever their business, because father was a businessman. He had land, he had cattle, he had, he had all these, he was a businessman as well as he was a very successful farmer. And so he's out there working in the fields, he's, he's helping to cultivate the ground, do the work, and then he comes back to the sound of a party in the house. A party no one invited him to. A party that no one came out to the field and said, hey, come on, there's a party going on at your house, let's go. He gets angry and refused to go into this party. Now, let's just be real for a moment. I want to take an an opportunity to have an honest introspection that I'm going to cause when you inspect what's inside. Okay, so an honest inspection of what's in you. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands because I don't want you to feel any type of way, but how many of you, after working all day long, would pull up to the driveway of your house to see a party going on in the house that nobody told you about, nobody invited you to, you're a little tired from the day. How many of y'all would be happy in that moment, right? So not only was they not invited, but then we find out why we're having a party. Your brother, your brother is back. We're celebrating his return. And this son's like, what? What? This, 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 This clown, this punk, this person who said my father is dead, took his money and then spent it on hookers? And we're partying for that? That doesn't make any sense. Why would we throw a party? Why is he not out here with the servants? Why is he not out doing what I'm doing and working hard in the field? After all, 
He's done nothing to deserve this party. And then he did one of the worst things he could possibly do. And I'm so thankful no one in this room has ever done this. He compares himself to his younger brother. I'm thankful I'm in a room of people who've never compared themselves to anyone before. Y'all laugh because you know you have. And I have as well. But he compares himself to the younger brother. So you got to understand something there. When we think about this older, younger brother, it doesn't have a whole big kind of big deal concept. It's like, yeah, that's my older brother. I can't stand him. He used to beat me up. Or yeah, that's my younger brother. I can't stand him. All he did was annoy me and want to be around me and my friends. That's our context of older, younger brother. But you have to understand, historically and culturally, in the Jewish home, in this home, in the Israel home, the, the birth order was very significant. The older brother was the one who was awarded all, more than anyone else. He was the one awarded more honor, more loyalty, more dedication, more authority, more power, more money, more everything was given to the older brother. Yet the older brother's out here working his tail off and the younger brother's in there partying. So of course he's frustrated. But his frustration is simply because he missed something significant that was going on. And I feel like a lot of us in a lot of ways are the older brother. We miss something very significant going on because we're so focused on little insignificant things that we miss the most significant thing that's happening. I think our culture is a lot like that. We focus on so many negative things and so many every, and now everyone has a platform to stand up and say, I don't like this or I don't like that. So I imagine that most of our reactions would be very similar to this situation. The older son, what the older son failed to realize and recognize the flaws of his brother as a human, as humanity. See, we fail to, even in one another, we fail to recognize that. I say some things that frustrate you. You want to criticize me and condemn me, not talk to me, not love me. And, we, and I, vice versa, I probably have done that to you. We become so opinionated that the only opinion that matters is ours. That's what the problem is with this older brother right now. The only opinion that matters is his. His way is the right way. His opinion is the right one. And, God, and then he goes and tells his father, I've done all of this for you. and You've not given me anything. And father's like, whoa. Now, he's so much more graceful than me, so, so much more gracious than me, I should say, because I'd be like, bro, slow your roll right now. I haven't given you anything. Everything I have is yours. But he doesn't recognize that. And so the truth comes out, the pain and the pride and the hurt, the years of obedience spent slaving away haven't mattered at all. The absence of any kind of reward and the absence of any kind of reward had to have been intentional. Because after all, this, this brother of mine, this son of yours, he calls him. We're going to get to that statement in a minute. But this son of yours, he calls him, he's been wildly living and he gets a party. So all that I have done, there's no, there's no reward. It must have been intentional. Matter of fact, he, starts to, he would probably start to think, and I, I, would, say, I would echo that we would think, but well, he was always loved more, and he was always preferred, and he was always blessed more, and he always had this and always had that. There were never, there are no consequences, whether good or bad, for any behavior. That no matter what I do, it doesn't seem to matter. Anybody ever lived in that place before? I know I have. I know that's a place that I have lived many times in my life. But that is 
this son, this older son, throwing, dare I say, a pity party. Why don't I get anything? Why don't I have these things? And let's look at their father's response. It's, it's a beautiful response. He said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. Notice what the father did with the younger son coming home. Yeah, he threw a party. But the older son always had access to all of it. He just failed to act. Everything I have is yours. I want you to sit in that in the, for a moment. Sit in the phrase, everything I have is yours. This is a parable. This is an illustration that Jesus is using to teach people about who the Father is. And he's saying, everything I have is yours. Think about that for a minute. What? Think about, just rest in that moment for a minute. And while you're resting in that moment, do me a favor. I want you to close your eyes for just a second. Indulge me for just a couple of seconds. And I want you to think. Remove the filter from your mind because that's what humanity does. We filter everything we hear through our own opinion, our own hurts, our own pains, which is why I pray what I pray before I preach every single Sunday is I want that filter to be removed, that to be decreased so God can increase. So close your eyes for just a moment, remove that filter from your mind and think of what God has. Think of what he has. And he says, everything I have is yours. The Father attends to our pain, our bitterness, our sin, and responds with the same heart we see more loudly on display in others. That's what happens to the older son. The father is responding to the older son the same way he responded to the younger son who was lost. But because of the pain and the bitterness and the hurt in his son, he couldn't see the father responding. He assures us the father calls us his own. He breathes intimacy and draws us close to him. He assures us that nothing, nothing is withheld from us. No good gift will ever be withheld from his people. This is who he is. There is no favoritism, no ignorance of our service. The Father has seen everything, he's known everything, and he's loved me all along the journey. Even in my pride, even in my bitterness, the fattened calf, the robes, the dancing, the party, it's all available to the older son just as it is to the younger son. And I dare I say that when you compare yourself as sitting in here to anyone else in the kingdom of God, let me just tell you whatever they are portraying and whatever they have, you have access to. There's no difference just because you're different people. No one is greater than the other in the kingdom of God. We all have access to the same stuff. We've just got to figure out how to access that stuff. The problem is this. We allow everything else around us to cloud us in such a way that we can't see God's stuff. 
And I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about materialism because if you've been here long enough, you know that that's not my gospel. It's not what I preach. It's not the Bible. What I'm talking about is everything that he has, the grace that he has, love that he has, forgiveness that he has, mercy that he has, favor that he has. We have access to this. The Father still shares. And in this moment, here's what I love. The Father still shares a moment of growth, a growth opportunity for his son. His, work, his righteousness of works, his hardened heart, his bitterness are all still addressed with a beautiful invitation that he gives him. See, earlier the older son hurtfully shared, but when this son of yours come home, comes home, he says, notice he says, when this son of yours comes home. Any of you have children and are married, you have made this statement at least once in your life. That daughter of yours, that son of yours, your child, your kid. You said one of those to somebody at some point in time. Lord knows I have. I call, Alicia, come get your kid. Because in that moment, they're not my kid because I'm going to beat them. We've all made that, that statement. In this, in this t- context, when he says this son of yours, he's actually saying, I am wiping my hands of him. I can't stand him. He's irritating me to the point that I don't even care if he lives or dies, whether he's partying or sitting with the pigs. I don't really care. He's your son. But notice what the father says to him. This brother of yours. Mm. The older brother says, this is your son. The father comes back and says, this is your brother. Why is that significant? Because there's a lesson that God is using, that Jesus is using this parable to teach that is not just about the son coming home. It's not just about the redemptive quality and process of Christ. It's not just about the, the, the glory and the honor and the loyalty and the, and the power and the authority that God has placed on you. It's about how we interact with one another as much as it is about how we interact with God. But we miss that in this story because nobody focuses on the other son. Nobody focuses on this, these last few verses of the scripture that it's just we breed them in passing and then go back to celebrating the, father, the son coming home. But here's the reality. We need to find a solidarity and a companionship in this family called the kingdom of God. That there should be a grace and a love towards one another, not an, a, not an, a competition of vying for God's, God's voice or vying for his, his attention, but rather that we are fully present and we're loving one another, fully present with one another. What does that mean? That means in all of my sin, in all of my personality, in all of who I am, with my error, with my mistakes, with my failures, you are supposed to love me and call me your brother. And vice versa, with all of your sin, with all of your issues, with all of your struggles, with all of your pain and all your problems, I'm supposed to love you and call you my brother and my sister. Anything outside of that breaches the gospel. Fact. 
anything outside of that. You want to condemn me for anything that I say, you're breaching the gospel. You want to fight me over beliefs, you're breaching the gospel. You want to criticize a young generation for meeting, you're breaching the gospel. Yeah, it's that serious, and yeah, it's that real, and yes, it's that black and white. The father reminds him, this brother of yours was lost. This brother of yours was dead. This brother of yours is now found. We ought to celebrate with one another. But let me tell you what you will hear in the seats, in the pews across America's church today. You will see that young brother walk into the, the church knowing he is responsible for maybe the drugs that go into a community or maybe knowing he is responsible for some of the division that has happened in the church and he will walk in the church and folks will be like, you see who just walked in here? Can you believe they just walked in here? Or let's just take it down, uh, you're being dramatic and serious, and yes, maybe I am. So let, let's just bring it down a notch a little bit and say that person who walks in here who looks a little bit different from you, whose hair is styled a little bit different from you, or maybe it's colored a little bit different from you, or maybe they decided they're going to walk into church and put big old holes in their ear because they like the way it looks. Or maybe they walk in and they're tatted from their fingers to their toes, and we say, you see who just walked in? Or maybe they walk in in their country. And your city, maybe they walked in and they got a little bit of redneck in them as if that's a bad thing. Or maybe they walk in and they got a little city in them who've never seen a cow if, it's that, if, that's, a, if that's a bad thing. And all of a sudden, these people walk into the doors of the church and our thoughts are t- drawn towards what we see and what we think we know of them. And then we say, well, you see, and then may God forbid you know them. You want to know why doors of the churches are not being darkened the way they used to be? Because they walk into judgment. They walk into look at who I was. You know, it's biblical. The Bible even says a prophet cannot even gain honor in his own hometown. All he gains is condemnation, criticism. It's true. It's a, it's a biblical thing, but it's not that it's supposed to be that way. It's that way because of humanity being flawed and broken and so worried about what they don't have that they can't see and celebrate with what someone else does have. But the Father does not hold back anything. The magnitude of that invitation, the scope is limited, limitless. He says, everything that I have is yours. When our brothers and sisters leave, we should grieve as if death has occurred. If when they re- rejoice, we should repent. Or we, when they re- repent, we should rejoice As if a resurrection has taken place. Because after all, that's what we're going to celebrate next week. Churches around the world are going to be filled praising God for victorious resurrection. Yet living a dead life and not allowing someone else to resurrect their life. Yeah, I know. That's preaching is tough. It's cool that you don't like it. It's just the truth. So now let's let's get into this older brother and let's see exactly how this relates to us, because let me tell you something, there is a reward for being loyal. You know, yes, there is rewards when a lost comes home, the ring, the robe, the sandals, the fattened calf, the party, that's a rejoicing. The Bible says that all of heaven rejoices over one who repents, but there is reward for being loyal, both here and in heaven. 
there is reward for being loyal. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is looking all around the entire earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's looking for people who are loyal to him. People who are strong in their faith. Not because there's something special about them, but because they have this reliance on God is what makes them strong. It's, it, is a, it is critical to be loyal to God if you want to see him show up strong in your behalf. See, what's not talked about in this parable is this young son who was lost, who came home and got the party. You really think he's not going to deal with some aftermath of his decisions and choices? I've been saved 20 years 20 years I've been saved serving Christ. I've been preaching the gospel for 18 and a half of those 20 years. And, and still to this day do I suffer some decisions and choices that I made in my youth. Still to this day in the first 24 years of my life, I still suffer for some of the decisions and choices that I've made. So there are still consequences for our decisions and choices. We live them out through our children. We live them out through our bodies physically. We live them out through our mentality. There's still consequences for our choices and decisions. So don't get it twisted. This younger brother is going to face some stuff in his journey. But as he grows in his faith and as he is loyal to God, God does things on their behalf. Loyalty is something that's completely missed in our society today. We are loyal to one another as long as we agree with one another. Loyalty goes out the window once there's a disagreement. But loyalty is important. Linda Ravenhill said, loyalty is genuine and authentic commitment to something that is genuine and authentic. Let me say that again. Linda Ravenhill said, loyalty is genuine and authentic commitment to something that is genuine and authentic. We become loyal to things that are not real, but not loyal to what is real. And so, this, let me just tell you how important loyalty is to God. David had his three, his 30, and his 300 who were intensely loyal to him in good times and in bads. Joshua was intensely loyal to Moses. Jesus was intensely loyal to his disciples, and in their last years on earth, his disciples were loyal to him. They would suffer and they would die for the cause of Christ. Peter, in all of his excitement and exuberance, refused to die the way Christ died and said, Dad, do, do that to me upside down. I don't even deserve the honor of death the way Christ died. There is nothing more loyal in life than dying. Matter of fact, the Bible even says, the gospel tells us that there is no greater love that one has for another that they lay their life down for their brother. Why, that's why people, this is the reality of why people who've never served in the military don't understand the military. Don't understand the bond that is formed among soldiers who say and, and do it with a, a volunteered heart to say, I will die for you. If necessary. Two people who show up in boot camp from different sides of the world and different sides of culture and different sides of upbringing will come together and say, I will die for you if necessary. Same thing happens in gangs in the streets of Chicago and New York and Los Angeles. It's a family of people that will die for one another, but the one place it doesn't happen that it's biblically mandated to happen is the church. Loyalty to one another is 
necessary. And I've got just a few points that I want to give you as I begin the descent to land this plane. It's what I love. What I, let me tell you what I love about that analogy. I'm using it now because it usually still takes, once they say we're, we're, we're beginning our descent, it usually takes about 20 more minutes to land a plane. So I like it. So Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17, the Bible says, A friend is always loyal, and a brother is born, in, born to help in time of need. So number one, loyalty is proven in adversity. Loyalty is proven in adversity. When it come, becomes a, a, a relationship with one another and we become, when loyalty happens, it's actually proven when things get tough. When things get difficult, when offense has taken place, when grievance is there, when disagreements take place, are you still loyal to one another or do you join the crowd of whispers about one another? So the question I'd ask you is, who do you depend on? Who do you have in your life that when you go through adversity, when you go through hell, you know you can depend on them? Even better question, who can you depend on? And who can depend on you? It's not just about who I can depend on, because that's what we make it. We make it about myself. Who can I depend on if I'm going through something? Let's look out there in the world and say, who can depend on me? Now, before you start getting anything twisted, everybody who says, oh, I don't need anybody but Jesus. I don't need to depend on anybody but God. That's not biblical. Biblical relationship and biblical faith says that we depend on one another. Iron sharpens iron. That's the idea. Loyalty is proven in adversity. It will, it will be a very small circle. When you start to really think about this, when you sit down and hopefully you'll do this this week or at some point in time in your life. You'll sit down and say, who can I truly depend on? And who can truly depend on me? Here's what you're going to find out. That, that circle is going to be very, very small. It's going to be a very small circle. We try to make it a big circle. We try to think, oh, I've got all these friends that I can depend on. And they can all depend on me. And that's really not true. Because... They can't depend on you, and you surely can't depend on them because we're humanity. But man, a small circle. I can tell you right now, in my life, there's probably two or three people that I could say that if I came to them in the darkest moments of my life, that I would, say, I would receive grace and love from them with no judgment, no condemnation. No, man, you're a pastor. You shouldn't be doing these kinds of things. I got two, maybe three people. Martin Luther King, he illustrated it the best when he said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Those who choose neutrality when things go haywire are not your friends. Oh, let me tell you what a good friend would do. A good friend will come to you and call you out because you're acting like a fool. That's what a good friend would do. A good friend won't feed the beast of sin, but a good friend will condemn the beast of sin and say, hey, God has more for you than this. Why are you doing this to yourself? But no, that's judgment. Don't judge me. That's not judgment. We got all these words in scripture all twisted up. I got to move on because I'm running out of time. We're still descending and I'm going to hit the ground too quickly. So loyalty is 
proven in adversity. Number two, loyalty is rewarded with favor. I love this part of it. Because I started this last week with y'all. I love this part of it. So let me set up this story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to illustrate this idea with, a story, with setting up this story for you. There's this woman in scripture. Her name is Naomi. Her and her husband lived in Bethlehem in Israel. There was this severe drought in the land and they needed to move to Moab. While they lived in Moab, their two sons married Moabite, Moabite women. Why this is a problem is because they were sinful, other God-worshipping women. And that was actually against the law because they were not Jewish. They were pagan women. One of the women that they married was a woman named Ruth. Then something tra tragic happened to Naomi. Her husband died and both of her sons died. So her husband and both sons die. Here she's stuck in Moab with her two pagan daughter-in-laws. <laughs> if you're a deeply religious Israelite woman and you're stuck in a foreign nation with foreign daughter-in-laws whom you don't really like anyway because your sons broke the law by marrying them, imagine her situation. She's stuck. So she felt the best opportunity she had was to return back to Bethlehem. And so to her surprise, both of her daughter-in-laws wanted to return with her. Now, I don't even have time to go into the cultural significance of that miracle, but let me just tell you, that was a miracle that they desired to return with her. Mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws wanting to live together, that's a miracle in itself. But in the, in the Jewish culture, it was an even greater miracle that took place. I think it's one of the greatest miracles in the Bible that's completely overlooked because Naomi packed and began this journey back home and her two daughter-in-laws were following after her. Naomi even told them they should just stay home with their own people, remarry, have children. The one daughter-in-law stayed back. Ruth did not. So let's look at Ruth. And this is her reply to her mother-in-law. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever I die, I, wherever you die, I will die and there, will, there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Verse 18, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So it's kind of like this. Hey, wherever you go, I go. Wherever you die, I die. Whatever you do, I do. Stop talking about it. And Naomi's like, all right, let's go. It was still a weird thing. But Ruth had, this, Ruth had this dedication. So they moved there. They had nothing. They were as poor as you could imagine. Here, she picked a field to follow the harvester, picking up whatever grain would fall behind their harvest. This was actually called gleaning. This was something that was, re that was left for the, the poorest of the poor. I'm talking, this was the destitute of the destitute, the broken of the broken, the poorest of all the people. They were allowed to follow the harvesters and pick up whatever grain would fall on the side. And that's what, they, that's what they would eat. Harvest season doesn't happen every day of the year, mind you. It's a seasonal thing. So seasonally, they could follow the harvesters. 
Now think about this. So we think about this in the big context of look at these big combines going and we follow back and pick up the grain. No, they followed oxen, crapping all over the place, stepping in it to get a piece of food. See, we don't have that imagery. I hope you have it now. It's nasty. So the harvesters let some, and, and some of them would let more, a little bit more grain to fall because they had a little bit more grace. So Ruth picked a good field. She picked a field that belonged to a man named Boaz. And so let me tell you, Ruth chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. Listen to this story right here as it comes to completion. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Boaz went over to Ruth and said, listen, my daughter. That was already a cultural no-no. Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you, get, when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Woo, wait a minute. Men are drawing water from a well that a woman who was from Moab was allowed to have? Go study the Bible and find out how messed up that is. Then he says, and Ruth even knows it. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. And this is what he says. She says, I'm only a foreigner. And he says, yes, I know. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you have left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. There is loyalty and there is reward for loyalty to God. Ruth is experiencing royalty. And this isn't even the end of the story. Go read chapter 3. I love this story. Go read the book of Ruth. It's powerful. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 is the love part of the story. But she gets this Boaz. Go and Google Google Jensen Franklin Boaz. You'll get a nice laugh out of that. I was going to show it in church, but it's really good. It's kind of funny. If you're highly religious, you might be offended. But to tell you a little bit about that love story, Boaz marries Ruth. Ready for this? Listen to what loyalty can gain you, okay? This has got to settle in your heart. Man, I got to move. Ruth marries Boaz. They have a son named Obad. And Obad has a son named Jesse. And Jesse gets married and has a boy named David who would become king of Israel. Years later, the same family in the same town, Joseph marries a woman named Mary, and they would give birth to Jesus Christ. There is reward for loyalty in the kingdom of God. You cannot be the younger brother who just can run around and live however you want to live. Yeah, when you come home, you're going to get the fattened calf. But let me tell you, the older brother already had access to all of that and so much more because of his loyalty. Those of you who are loyal to the kingdom of God, loyal to God, loyal to Christ as Savior, you have access to stuff you don't even know about. A pagan Moabite widow, 
for most of her life, worshipped a false god. And at some point, she discovered that Naomi was real and genuine. And there was something real and genuine about God, the God that she served. And she made a decision to connect herself to something genuine. When you make a decision to connect yourself to something genuine, you receive something genuine from it. Don't be insincere about your connection to God. We think, oh yeah, I love Jesus. Let me raise my hand. Come Monday, do you really love Jesus? When people start talking about you, do you really love Jesus? So let's tie that back to, the, to our story and the father's favor that fell on the older son. And why? Because the older son was loyal. Loyal to what? Number one, he was loyal to the word of God. We don't see that in the illustration, but he worked for his father. He honored his father. He was loyal to the word of God. And because he was loyal to the word of God, he saw favor from God. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 says, study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to, and be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. Everybody wants to prosper and succeed, but nobody wants to be obedient to the word. And the word tells us that's the only way to be prosperous. Prosperity gospel isn't a bad thing it's if, it's if it's preached in context because God desires for you to be prosperous. Not the kind of prosperity that says, hey, send me your, I'll send you this handkerchief for 65 bucks that I blessed. That's not prosperity. That's false, that's false scripture. That's false preaching. But what is is that if you are loyal to God, you, are pro, you will be prosperous and succeed in all you do according to Joshua 1.8. Psalm 1 verses 1 and through 3 says, oh, the joys of those who have not who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. God desires for his people to be prosperous. Now, that prosperity is not necessarily money, but it's joy, it's happiness, it's wealth, it's health, it's relationships. God's desire is for you to be prosperous. You cannot be swayed by the enticement or the sexiness of the convenient teaching that points somewhere other than Jesus. Because there's teaching out there that points at all kinds of places, not Jesus. So he was loyal to the word of God. Let me tell you something else, and we're going to bring this down a little bit to practicality for you, is be loyal to the body of Christ. Be loyal to his church. And when I say his church, I'm not talking about relevant faith church or the four walls that you're standing in or sitting in in this movie theater. I'm talking about the global church, the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13 says, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we all have been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Be loyal and dedicated to the body of Christ, to his church. Mark chapter 12, Luke chapter 2, Luke 20, Luke 21, Jesus was in the temple teaching. Some of those passages say that Jesus was in the temple teaching every day. And when he was lost or when his parents couldn't find him because he wasn't lost, he's like, what are you worried about? I was in my father's house. And then the Bible tells us not to forsake the assembly of God's people. We do this on a daily basis. We're not loyal to the body of Christ. It's important to be loyal to the body of Christ and important to be loyal to the church. It's part of the plan. 
And number three, the last thing, this brings this whole thing full circle, is you have to be loyal to God's people. Loyal to God's people. John chapter 15, verse 12 and 13. The Bible says, this is my commandment. Can I, can I just tell you something? When you read that, when he says, this is my commandment, can I just help you out for a second? It's not optional. You love Jesus, it's not optional. If you don't love Jesus, then you got all the options in the world. Do whatever you want. But if you love Jesus, it's not optional. He says, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. Ooh. <laughs> I done messed all y'all up right there and you missed it. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. Jesus speaking to the people saying, you have to love each other the way I love you. How does Jesus love us? <sighs> Suffered and died for you. He gave everything he had for you. Matter of fact, the very people who were killing him and beating him, he said, forgive them. Ah, that's not popular preaching. Let me move on. You don't like that. Verse 13, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You want to love well? Love like Jesus. When we love each other the way Jesus called us to love each other, then we are exercising loyalty to one another. You cannot say, I love someone without being loyal to that person. I will suggest, and this is going to be unpopular, but for those that have stepped outside of their marriage in infidelity, you cannot say that you love your wife because you stepped out that way. You can't. You may have loved her, but you don't love her no more. Because you, when you love people, you are loyal to them. Does that exclude us from making a mistake? No. Not at all. We're humans. Humans make mistakes. I'm not condemning you by any means. I'm just sharing what the reality of truth is. You cannot say I love someone without being loyal to that person. Loyalty is not just found in the context of the marriage, but it's also found in how we talk of one another. How we embrace one another. How we share with one another. And I've shared this before, and I'm going to close on this passage if the worship team can come and get set. Or... I've shared this before, and I'm going to close with this passage because this is the, the anthem. I call it the anthem of my life. The, uh, the one passage of Scripture that's my go-to and has been forever. It's found in Proverbs Chapter 3, in verse number 1, the Bible says, My child, never forget the things I have taught you. Store my commands in your heart. If you do this, you will live many years and your life will be satisfying. Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. Tie them around your neck as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart. Then, part of why I love this passage of Scripture is because it makes things simple. I read it like this, Mike. I read it like this, Mike. Never forget the things I have taught you. Store my commands in your heart. If you do this, Mike, you will live many years and your life will be satisfying. 
Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. Tie them around your neck as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart because, Mike, you know, if you do, then you will find favor with both God and people. You will earn a good reputation. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take.